All right, so we are in the uh, last week of our summer series, or no, fall series, called Faith in 4D, and what we're exploring is just deeper, richer kinds of faith experiences. And so we're using a graphic that actually Alex worked up, and uh, it shows four dimensions of space-time, sort of, right? Yeah, the first dimension, which is just a line, and that represents our individual faith. Now, our individual faith is, is great. You know, if you're a person of prayer or Bible reading or you just think thoughts of God in eternity or what, what he might want for our lives, it's fantastic. But God has designed us for something broader, and that is that relational faith, being connected with friends and family. And so we talked through the scriptures and basically came to this conclusion that we can only thrive if we're surrounded by love and support from our friends and family. And then last week, we went deeper than that. We talked about a communal faith, that there's a bigger family around us beyond just our immediate friends and immediate family. There's a whole community around us, which could be our, 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 our city. It could be our church, where we get our identity in something bigger than ourselves. And we even talked about embracing the entire world as our community, which um, is, you know, a little fodder for discussion here and there. Today, we're going to kind of continue that by talking about a societal faith or a social faith, a social faith. How can we live out our faith in society? Now, that word social and faith brings up some anxiety with some Christians. There's a lot of debate going on about a lot of things. There's 13,314 different meaningless debates happening within the Christian church. Um, This is not a meaningless debate. It is a, a real debate about who we are in the world who we are in the world. And the way this debate is going on in, you know, let's say seminaries or with pastors is gospel versus social gospel. Gospel versus social gospel. So I'm not gonna get too weird and wonky here, but you'll see how this little debate is actually impacting how the church lives our lives in the world. The gospel versus social gospel. Now, the gospel is a churchy word that is not used anywhere else other than church. And so I typically am not a big fan of words that only churches use because the rest of the world's like, you guys are absolutely out of your mind and irrelevant. But that word gospel is sort of a leftover word from a Greek word and, a, and an Anglo-Saxon word. And so I'm gonna lead you through just a minute of how we got to the word gospel. The gospel is the message, the Christian message. That's basically what it is. The Christian message. And it's really based on this Greek word, euangelion. And euangelion is a Greek word that is a good announcement. It's a good announcement, a good news announcement. Now, the Anglo-Saxon world, hundreds of years after the resurrection of Jesus, translated euangelion as uh, Godspell, Godspell, which means good news. And the modern church has sort of adopted that word, didn't change it into modern English, just tweaked it as gospel, gospel. So that's how we get the word gospel in church. You will use it or see it nowhere else other than church. It's from euangelion, then Anglo-Saxon word good spell or God spell, and now it's gospel. Gospel is the core message of Christianity, the core message of Christianity. And as we'll see today, that core message then has a lifestyle associated with it, what could be called the social gospel. The gospel versus the social gospel. Now, I could stand up here for the next 20 minutes and give you all kinds of fun details about how the gospel, the euangelion, the message is all throughout the scripture, but I found a cartoon that could do it a lot better than I could, and it's only four minutes. So this cartoon is from the Gospel Project, and without being too facetious, we could watch Gospel Project videos here every Sunday and be just fine as a church. This place is amazing, the Gospel Project. This is a Gospel Project on the word gospel, so it's like we're all in, 
And it's a cartoon, so I'm really all in. So check this out. I think you're going to like it. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. You means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, biser is what we might call national news, or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger biser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings, whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity, even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants, because the last are first, and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. 
And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. All right, so that's some Sunday morning cartoon, and uh, that just does a great job expressing this gospel, that there's this announcement culture from the Old Testament, this announcing of a message of victory, right, of God's blessing, and then Jesus redefines that and says, really, there's a kingdom that is coming, and it's the kingdom of heaven. It's not like an earthly kingdom. It's not of thrones and armies and power and politics. It's a kingdom of love and grace and mercy, and then once we receive that kingdom, there's this life that generates what the scripture calls eternal life. And it's a pleasure in God's love. It's a pleasure in God's grace and forgiveness. And then there's a lifestyle that pours out from that. So it's the gospel preached and the gospel practiced. In Matthew chapter nine, verse 35, we see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news announcement that a brand new kingdom is here and Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Love, grace, mercy, kindness, forgiveness. And then what does he do? He puts that to work, to action, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So it's the announcement of a new king and a new kind of kingdom, but then there's a work that comes from that, a lifestyle. I'll put it this way. A new kingdom is here. This is the announcement. A new kingdom is here, led by the resurrected Jesus, inviting everyone to receive the love of God than to love the world around us. It's kind of cool, right? To put it this way, the gospel is preached and the gospel is practiced. The gospel is preached and the gospel is practiced. The good news is talked about and the good news is lived. So what is the gospel preached? Um, if you ask 100 Christians what is the good news message, you will get 100 different answers, but it will all center around Jesus and the work of Jesus. It might go something like this. This is the gospel preached, that Jesus is the very nature of God revealed to the world. That's good news. God showed up that Jesus is the king of a new kind of kingdom. It's a not, not a corrupt kingdom of violence like political kingdoms or religious kingdoms can be, new kind of kingdom. The kingdom is the realm of God's love through Jesus Christ. It's a realm that we're invited to. Jesus suffered and died at the hands of the world's kingdoms. So as the corrupt and violent kingdoms of politics and religion sort of press in on Jesus, they put Jesus to death. But on the third day, Jesus rose in victory, establishing an eternal kingdom. And we are now invited to that kingdom. We can experience the kingdom by believing and following Jesus. Some people might add a few things or take away a few things, but bottom line, that is the gospel preached. That's the core message. And, and some would say, kind of theologically, let's just end it there, and that's the goal. The goal is to preach Jesus. And I would say, fine, yay for preaching Jesus. I kind of have a job because of preaching Jesus, right? So I'm, I'm down with that. But Jesus practiced and preached that there's more than just words. There's more than just the announcement, right? The gospel is to be practiced. The gospel is to be practiced. So how can the gospel be practiced? How can this good news announcement of God's love and God's kingdom that we're all invited to, how can that be practiced? Well, I think we see the clearest, most concise articulation of this in Galatians chapter five, verse 14. The apostle Paul says the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. He's restating something Jesus said when he was asked what's the greatest command. Jesus said much the same thing. 
The Apostle Paul says to love your neighbor as yourself is the entire summation of the entire scripture. And it's the gospel lived, practiced. And it begins with the understanding that we're to love ourselves, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So the gospel lived is really about loving ourselves. And that's an idea that's not real common in church circles. Usually we talk about the love of God for us or loving others. But this idea of loving your neighbor begins with loving yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus is saying, and the apostle Paul is saying, you cannot love your neighbor unless you first love yourself. Because if you're not confident in in the love that God has for you that results in the love that you have for yourself, you don't have anything to draw from to love your neighbor. Loving ourselves. We talk about that quite a bit here and we will continue. To love ourselves knows that God made us in his own image. We are image bearers. We are the image of God. And yes, we're not perfect, and we know we're not perfect, but there's a spark of God and a spark of heaven in each one of us. We're made in God's image, so he loves us like a parent loves a child, but it's perfect love because he's a perfect father. And the way you love your imperfect child is the way God loves you, and more so. He doesn't see you by your failures. He sees you for who you are. He sees you for the treasure that you are. You're his treasure, you're his joy, you're his glory. The scripture's clear about that. So love yourself. I say this every once in a while. Look in the mirror and think to yourself, you're a big deal made in the image of God, declared perfect in the eyes of God. God treasures me. Love yourself. And when we love ourselves, we can then love our neighbors, genuinely love our neighbors. So the question is, who's our neighbor? During the time of Jesus, everybody understood that our neighbor was the person just like us, the person in the same city, the person with the same religion, the person with the same ethnicity. That was the understanding, to love your neighbor. Oh, no problem, I'll love people who are just like me. Jesus says, no, no, no. So he tells this story of the uh, uh, Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And uh, I'll just summarize it, most of you know the story. Here's a Jewish man who was attacked in the middle of a street, just attacked and he's beaten and left to die. Uh, other Jewish people walk by him and don't want to be bothered, but a Samaritan comes by and cares for this Jewish man. Now, Samaritans and, and Jews were supposed to hate each other. They culturally hated each other. Different blood, which actually ends up not to be true according to DNA, but that's kind of a fun little sidebar. They thought they had different blood. They thought they had a different ethnicity, and they had different religious perspectives, slightly. So you got to hate each other, right? Different blood, different ethnicities, you got to hate. And that's what they did. So Jesus tells a parable of a Samaritan coming alongside and helping a Jewish man in need. That would not happen. That was considered to be unthinkable, but it's just a story. And Jesus is casting a vision of what the kingdom of heaven could be put to practice if we love our neighbor and considered our neighbor to be everyone, the whole world, even people who have different blood, different ethnicities, different race, different religions. We consider everybody to be a part of a family. And we help people and love people the way Jesus helped and loved others. Now, that's what we're supposed to do. The punchline of the story of the Good Samaritan is in Luke chapter 10, verse 37. The one who showed mercy was a good neighbor. We are all neighbors with no boundaries. And then Jesus says, now go and do the same. That's the kingdom of heaven, not just preached, but practiced. Gospel, social gospel, preached and practiced. It's about loving ourselves, loving our neighbors, and then loving the world around us. 
loving the world around us. And this is something that honestly is just hard to do. We can sort of get the idea about loving our neighbor, the people around us, but it's harder to love the world, the entirety of society, right? Everyone, everywhere. That seems really kind of overwhelming. And, and I get that. Now, when we talk in these terms about loving society itself, this is when alarm bells start to go off among some Christians and they say, ah, this sounds like social gospel. Social gospel is replacing the verbal announcement or the propositional announcement with good works. So some people might say, hey, don't replace the gospel with social gospel. Well, I think we need to understand really what social gospel is, right? I'm gonna give you a little definition. It's the best one I found. Social gospel was an intellectual movement uh, 19th, maybe early 19th century that started bubbling up. And the idea was that this message, the good news message, needs to be put to work in a formal and organized manner to really elevate the entire world so that the entire world can start to look a little bit more like heaven the way Jesus imagined. So here's the definition. An intellectual and social movement within Protestant Christianity that seeks to apply Christian ethics to social problems, such as racial inequities, economic inequality, poverty, addiction, crime, ethnic tensions, low-income housing, the environment, labor, education, and the cost of war. That's the social gospel. Now, the social gospel was very organized. A lot of mainline denominations, Christian denominations, organized around political and social movements where, where they were uh, trying to move governments and building institutions and acquiring property and building these huge buildings for the public good. So if you go to most any major city, just drive around, you will see gigantic hospitals with Christian names on it. Methodists, Presbyterians, our own Loma Linda, Seventh-day Adventists. These are, these are Christian denominations that, that adopted this social gospel kind of a mentality that we can change the world. We can actually do it, and, and they did. They built the best hospitals, the best schools. All but one Ivy League school uh, was, was, um, was birthed through the Christian ethic, the idea that we can raise up and equip men and women to change the world, to make it look a little bit more like the kingdom of heaven. The reason why we have Rancho Christian, and that's the only kind of Jersey-ish thing I have. I don't have a Jersey. But um, the, reason, the reason why we started a school was not to separate kids from the world, but to equip students to change the world for the good, to make it a little more like heaven. So that sort of smells social gospel-y. And the social gospel was really designed to do two things, to put to practice the teachings of Jesus in two ways. And both of these are found in the Sermon on the Mount. One is found in Matthew 6.10. Jesus says, my people, my church, here's how you pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth. The kingdom of heaven on earth. So Jesus is saying, this place matters. The kingdom of heaven needs to come right here. And the kingdom of heaven needs to have such an impact that the world itself becomes more and more like heaven itself. It's an amazing thing. And how does that happen? The social gospel pointed to the golden rule. Matthew 7, 12. Jesus says, do to others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. So once again, Jesus is summarizing the entirety of scripture by saying, listen, do to others what you want them to do to you. Be kind, be generous, help people in need. And as we do that, the kingdom of heaven will come to earth. 
And this is really a matter of, of theology because how we are wired theologically really does determine how we're gonna live our lives, individually and as a church. And so there's really two kinds of thinking here in the Western Christian church that has to do with gospel versus social gospel or living out our faith in 4D societally. One, and don't go to sleep. These two words I'm gonna say to you are instantly gonna put 95% of you to sleep. So hang with me. Dispensational premillennialism. Like what, who cares exactly? Dispensational premillennialism is a theology that essentially says the place is burning to the ground. That's an overstatement. My dispensational premillennial friends might say, ah, I'm not sure that was fair. And all right, well, let's talk. But this is the basic idea that the end is near. The end is near. We talked about this a little bit last week as we talked about a communal faith. As we talk about a social faith, this matters. If you have been taught the world is coming to an end, if you've been taught end times theology, this is it. It's dispensational premillennialism. You didn't know the name, but now you do. You're welcome. Just changed your life. If you've been taught about end times theology, end times is coming soon, this is what you've been taught. Now, if you believe the world is coming to an end, if you believe the world's coming to an end soon, you're not gonna wanna fix it. If that house was burning down the road and I said, hey, I'm here to help fix the uh, sink, you're gonna laugh at me. You're not gonna wanna fix a sink of a house that's burning to the ground. So this is where theology matters. If our theology says the world is coming to an end, are we gonna build the next hospital? No, you're not gonna invest in the world. What you're gonna wanna do is save people from the world to get them into an eternal heaven. Listen, I'm all a big fan of eternal heaven, but I'm also a big fan of the prayer of Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we need to kind of get past this idea, I think, that the world is coming to an end and it's all getting worse. It's not. The world is not coming to an end and it's getting better by a long shot quick. I detail that probably too much, and I get in trouble every time I do. The world is improving. The world is becoming more and more like heaven with every passing year. Is this world perfect? What's the answer? Not at all, but it's not a house on fire. It's a house that's dilapidated, <laughs> all right? This is an actual house. It's the best picture of that house I've ever seen. It's actually quite a famous house in Maine, the state of Maine. Did you know there was a state called Maine? It's way, way out there. Uh, so there's a, um, a, a maritime captain and he built this house on the coast and just by all kinds of weird circumstances, the house is just sitting there rotting. Huge house, it was a beautiful house, but it's just rotting. The house is dilapidated. And we have one of two approaches. It's not burning, okay, that's fine. But do we really wanna put the time into fixing this place? And listen, I would understand if people said, I don't know, there's a lot of broken things about this world. I, maybe I won't put a lot of attention or heart into fixing this dilapidated world. But if I decided, you know what? It's a big project, but we can do it. We can do it. Hey, let's get together. Let's get a team. Let's do this. And if I got my sick little pipe wrench and went to that house and said, I'm gonna start with the sink, you wouldn't laugh at me. You'd say, all right, it's a big project. You're not gonna do this alone, buddy, but hey, go work on that sink. That'll be cute. I'll fix that sink. And then that might inspire somebody to, you know, to fix the porch. And is it possible that we can get sort of this vision back right? Where the Christian church doesn't teach any longer, the place is burning to the ground and let's just get people out. And if we can say, no, Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says, hey, listen, love your neighbor as yourself. That's how this place is going to get better. And it's not a kingdom of this world. It's not a kingdom of, of politics and government, which are very important, 
or educational systems or media, it's just, which is important. Everything has its place. But it's really a kingdom of heaven led by the raised Jesus Christ who's in us by his spirit, who gives us this vision and a passion that says, you know what? I got my own problems and I'm gonna address my own problems, but I'm gonna take a little bit of the energy that God gave me and I'm gonna get some friends of mine together, maybe from the church, and we're gonna start doing little things here and there because we are not giving up on this world. We're not giving up on this world. Here's that house when it was first built. It's built in the late 19th century, so it's just a black and white house, black and white picture. That house is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful, right on the coast of Maine. To me, a faith in 4D says this world can be restored. God so loved this world that he gave his only son. The very next verse says Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. There's no fire. It's gotten dilapidated because we focus on ourselves and because we tend to use our power to hurt people or oppress people and but instead, we can turn this around by the love of Christ, the preaching of Jesus, but the practice of Jesus to live out our faith societally, socially, and let's get some good work done. Now, some people might say, well, that's social gospel. And listen, Rancho's done a ton over the years to do things socially, societally, right? We launched Community Mission of Hope, the, the Valley's Rescue Mission. We've launched Home Family Housing, Transitional Housing for Families that in Need. We operate Rancho Domicitas, a village for single moms and babies. We operate the, the Valley's Food Pantry. Uh, we do housing counseling, case management, walking alongside people with dignity, learning from each other as we go, kind of putting lives and families back together and getting to independence, and then they turn around and start serving their neighbor. We've started two NGOs, one a medical non-government organization uh, providing medical care to the people in uh, Palawan, saving lives of children. Uh, we uh, assisted with the launch of Imani Christian School, orphan kids in Kenya who have a, a boarding school that they're being raised in a Christ-centered environment and nearly every one of them goes off to college when they graduate. Changing society itself. And some might say, well, that's social gospel. We don't call it that because it's got a stigma associated with it that's really political. The social gospel movement did tie itself to politics. We're generally not a total fan of that. But to do good works in the name of Jesus, not to just show mercy. If somebody is hungry, give them something to eat, that's great. But to really strive for justice, where are things systemically out of whack and where there are generational oppressions that result in generational problems and how can we again partner with people and partner even with those who are generationally oppressed and say, hey, let's learn from each other and help to fix even the systems that create the dilapidation of this world. It can happen. It can happen. Following Jesus hard, it can happen. Strategically planning, what, what can we do to not just show mercy but to show justice and to really be such a loving community that the community itself changes and have this happen time and time again, millions of times that the world can continue to look a little more like heaven. So gospel or social gospel? Gospel versus social gospel. What I'm gonna argue today is that we don't have to choose. We don't have to choose between the verbal proclamation, the verbal announcement, preaching the gospel of Jesus, or practicing the gospel of Jesus by good works, mercy, justice, and love. You can do both. I mean, listen, we're mature adults. We know we can do two things at the same time. And actually, the combination can be better. I'm gonna give you way too many examples. 
Spaghetti is good. Meatballs are also good. They're better together. It's not a choice between gospel or social gospel. Spaghetti and meatballs is pretty good with the two of them. Macaroni is good and cheese is good. You can have both and together they're even better. I'm just getting started. Chocolate is good and peanut butter is good. Put those two together, you got the best candy in the world, right? Getting ready for Halloween time. Chips are good. Salsa is also good. I'm going right over there to get chips and salsa as soon as we're done here. I'm like, ooh, I'll say hi to a bunch of you, but then I'm getting chips and salsa and a bunch of tacos. Fish is good. Yeah, this sometimes splits the room. Fish? All right, don't want a church split. Fish is good. Chips are good. Put them together, right? Fish and chips. Popcorn is good. Butter is also good. They're better together. It's not gospel versus social gospel. It's gospel, the preaching of Jesus and the practice of Jesus. SpongeBob is good. Patrick is also good. Together, they're unstoppable. The left Twix is good and the right Twix is also good. I'm barely over halfway done. Cereal is good and milk is good. Together, there's nothing better. Burgers are good and fries are also good. I'm more of a Mexican food person, but for some of you, this is your jam. Sundays are good and the NFL is also good. I thought about putting Sundays in church, but it's NFL Sunday, so we're good. Babies are good and puppies are good and you can have them both. Let's just land on that one for a while. That's just really super cute, about the cutest thing. You can have both, it's not one or the other. Tuesdays are good and tacos are good, so Taco Tuesday, right, it's the best. Walking is good and chewing gum is good. You can do both. So instead of fighting over gospel versus social gospel, preaching Jesus versus practicing Jesus, building the kingdom of heaven, we can do both. We're adults, let's do both, right? The way we uh, kind of brand it around Rancho is live free and do good. Live free and do good. Live free in the good news proclamation that Jesus is the expression of God. He's the love of God. He showed the love of God. He even gave himself on a cross to demonstrate how much he loves us. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead as the evil and sin of the world put him to death. He rose in victory over sin, over death, over the corruption and violence of this world. And he rules over a brand new kingdom. Right now, he's the king of a new kingdom. It's a kingdom of love and grace and mercy, unconditionally given to the entire world. That's the preaching of Jesus. And all are welcomed, all are invited to enjoy, to enjoy that. But now we can practice that by loving our neighbor. We can practice that by loving our city. We can practice that by loving the world around us. We can advance the cause of Christ, making this world a little more like heaven, a little more like heaven. Two quick practical things as we close. How do we do that? One, a little bit of care. Just a little bit of care. We can teach ourselves to care. We do that every day. What we focus on is what we care about. I have a little app that has, it's a stock app, and I have a couple of stocks. I'm checking this thing almost every day. I'm focusing on it, and I care about it, right? And if it's up, I'm like, ooh, that's a cool day. Ooh, Friday was, eh, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> but if it's down, yeah, you feel a little, so what we focus on, we care about, right? If we focus on our kids, we care about our kids. We focus on our house, we wanna redecorate our house or paint our house or organize our house. We care about what we focus on. So I want to ask us to focus on the world. <laughs> it's a big ask. Focus on the world, care about the world. And there's ways to do that. Um, for example, find a news feed that's not gonna suck you into a social media black hole. That's very hard. I had some counseling sessions over here after first service. 
Is there such a thing as a newsfeed that doesn't suck you into a, a social media black hole? They're out there, they're out there. Find an objective news source where you can read about what's happening in the world, not just in your social media circle or your community or even your nation, but the world. And, and when you focus on reading just a bit, manage it because you don't want to have your soul robbed with bad news all the time, but care about what's happening in this world. <clears throat> you might have known there was a terrible earthquake in Morocco. Um, excuse me. It might be uncomfortable to read about, but when we read about what's happening in the world, ask God to soften your heart to care about what's going on in Morocco. Thousands of people lost their lives. And when you read about a family of four, the entire family has lost their lives and then their relatives and their friends are mourning and grieving. It's sometimes hard to get into that and to watch some of those pictures and see some of those videos. It's difficult. But when we get to know what's happening in the world, our heart is gonna soften. One of my favorite worship songs is a little old now, is called Hosanna. And there's a phrase in there that says, break my heart with what breaks yours. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. God, I want my heart broken the way your heart's broken. But listen, if we were to read an article or two about what's happening in Morocco and we can grieve, what is that doing? It's aligning our heart with the grieving heart of God. God is grieving for those people. And when we read an article and, and, and hear a story that our heart is aligned with the grieving heart of God. Now we have to balance that, right? We don't want our heart just grieved all the time, but get in there and find out what's happening in this world. Uh, not just across the world, but even in our own country. Uh, we live in a violent country and to read about the violence that's happening in our country and why it's happening just a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, three black people were killed in Jacksonville just because they were black. And it, it was a blip in the news and then it just kind of died quick. And, and, and so as I'm reading these articles and the story behind it, and to know this is not irregular in America, it's not irregular. Eight people slaughtered for being black just a year ago. And it's like, okay, well, why is this country so violent and why are there these racial tensions? We can ignore the brokenness and the dilapidation of this world and just kind of keep moving on with our own lives. But there's also value to say, okay, I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna spend some time focusing here. Luke chapter 19, Jesus is facing his own problems. He's going to be crucified in Jerusalem, but his heart breaks for Jerusalem. His heart doesn't break for himself, it's breaking for Jerusalem. As Jesus came closer to Jerusalem, he began to weep how I wish Today that you would all understand the way to peace, but now it is too late. Jesus knows the destruction of Jerusalem is coming and it did come, and he's weeping for them. So when we weep for Morocco or weep for, weep for uh, Ukraine or weep for the, the impoverished people in Africa that are experiencing the terrors of political unrest and coups and they're in the middle of it all as bullets are flying all over their neighborhoods, when we allow ourselves to care societally, globally. We're aligning with the heart of God and we can read about it and pray. We can pray for these suffering people. And if you're a little bit cynical like I am, just being honest, I, I, I would ask the question maybe with you, well, what good will my prayers do? What good will my prayers do for the Moroccan people right now? I'm just gonna be honest with you, nothing. We pray right now, those people are still suffering. But when we pray, what does happen? 
our heart aligns with the grieving heart of God, and that is powerful. That is powerful. Our hearts align with the grieving heart of God, and then the Moroccan people can kind of know in some maybe mystical way or some real way, if there's a way to say to those people, we love you and are praying for you, that brings us together. It brings us together with the heart of God and brings us together as humanity, a little bit of care, a little bit of care and a little bit of action. A little bit of care and a little bit of action. There's something called compassion, compassion fatigue and compassion paralysis. Compassion fatigue is if we're too deep in the hard stuff, we just get numb to it. That's compassion fatigue, then we need our own care. Then there's compassion analysis, paralysis, which, said, which says the world is so dilapidated, what can I possibly do to help save the world? 20 years ago, I asked the question here at Rancho of some leaders at the time. I said, why don't we do any humanitarian works here? We did none, literally none. Why don't we do any humanitarian works here? The answer I got was we can't do everything. And at the time I wanted to say, I didn't ask how we could do everything. <laughs> I'm asking why we do nothing. And so 18 years ago, we started a real reformation of Rancho Church that says we are gonna put a lot towards humanitarian works. We're gonna preach Jesus every single week, but we're gonna practice the kingdom of heaven. And now 50% of every dollar that comes through Rancho goes to humanitarian works. And it's a wonderful thing. We can applaud that, sure. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to say, all right, we haven't arrived, but we're getting there, aligning our heart with the heart of Christ. But we're gonna live a four-day faith, an individual relationship with God, uh, an individual faith, a relational faith, a communal faith, but a societal faith. We're gonna care, and we're gonna do something. Here's some practical things, and we're done. Rancho.tv slash serve. <clears throat> Rancho.tv slash serve. You're gonna see a lot of ways you can get plugged in to help people in need locally and globally. Uh, one of the things we just wanna highlight is our replanted ministry. Uh, there are a bunch of people who are coming alongside families who have fostered kids and helping them tangibly with needs, with support, with love, uh, sometimes with training, right? We are helping in profound ways foster families who need a lot of help. You can find that in many other ways at uh, rancho.tv serve. And then finally, I wanna encourage you. We've got a great event coming up. It's for Community Mission of Hope in Rancho Damasitas, our food pantry, Hope Family Housing, our uh, Rancho Damasitas Village for uh, single moms and babies, case managing, case managing um, housing counseling, all of it. We're having a gala. It's a fundraising gala this month, September 28th, 5 to 9 p.m. at the most gorgeous place you'll ever see in your entire life, up in the hills here. Uh, great meal, and uh, we're gonna raise some money for a good cause. Come as an individual, come as a couple. If you have a bunch of friends, get a table, bring some friends. If you have a business, tell, buy a table for your business. Say, hey, we're gonna get there uh, and we're gonna do some good together. A Little bit of time, little bit of money can move a lot forward in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our time together. Such a, uh, an incredible opportunity to, to meet together as a family of faith and have a good time, but also to very seriously look at the cause of Christ, this gospel that is preached and this gospel that is practiced, this beautiful message that your love for us is shown through your son, Jesus Christ, the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity, preaching this message of love and grace unconditionally given to this world, and all are invited to believe and receive 
and that there's this new kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of love that is sweeping the world, making the world a little more like heaven, and then it can be this gospel practiced. Just a little bit of ourselves given to help somebody in need, and not just our neighbor, but the entire world, and together, this dilapidated house that you love so much, for God so loved the world, can become a little more like heaven. Thank you for the honor and the privilege of allowing us to participate. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said...